Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Kerry Evans, who is the principal of Autu Gable School, a secondary academy in Stanford La Hope, Essex. Uh, Kerry, welcome. Great to have you on the programme with us today. Nice to be here. Thank you. Pleasure to have you. Now, um, good leadership, which is what this podcast is all about, of course, is no more relevant than it is now, of course, with the um, fallout of the COVID-19 outbreak and the ensuing disruption. Um, Tell me, as um, Mm -hmm. the leader of a school, how have you found um, things over the past few weeks? I think as a leader in the school, um, you always have challenges, regardless of what they are. Um, COVID-19 being no different. I think for me, the challenges are, are the same, which is um, ensuring that we have a clear strategy and also clear communication with um, both the staff, students and the parents. Yeah, it's really important to maintain um, that effective uh, communication, isn't it? Because one has to remember that being a leader in any context, be it of a school, of a country, of a business, it's not just a one man or one woman effort, is it? It's very much about the people around you just as much as it is yourself. Absolutely, I think, I think you know, um, in Hall School where where I where I work, it's it's about the team. Um, quite simply, all I have to do is pull the threads together of what the team are doing, so we're all pushing in the same direction. And I think, you know, this morning, for instance, I was doing my Facebook Live to um, parents and staff and students. But it's about what my staff are doing and what the parents are doing and what the students are doing. And I think yes, the job of the leadership then is to bring that together to ensure that everybody is speaking to each other and everybody is clear on what we have to do um, in the coming days and weeks ahead. Absolutely. Now, drawing on your own experience, Kerry, of course, as a former winner of the National Teacher of the Year Award, no less, um, do you have any advice for leaders who are facing difficult situations at the moment, drawing on your own experiences? I think... I think, you know, the, the, the hallmark of a good leader is, is persistence and perseverance, isn't it? Because mm. uh, things inevitably go wrong. They, they, they go wrong, you know, um, almost on a daily basis. And it's just putting that into context and ensuring that you get yourself back up, you dust down and you, and you think, you know, what can I do better next time? And to keep on going because I think, you know, leadership means that you're constantly um, striving and you're constantly going to, bump into stress. It's just how you deal with it is important because, you know, leadership is a dynamic, a dynamic process and you never really know what is going to happen from one day to the next, do you really? Absolutely. And that's um, no more as stark um, than it is now, of course, with the um, the coronavirus outbreak, just going back to that for a moment, because the advice does seem to be changing day by day and new procedures are coming into place. And we have seen some real contrasting approaches there as well, because we have the likes of Xi Jinping, for example, in China, Giuseppe Conte in Italy, who were very proactive in putting their countries on lockdown quite early on, whereas we have brought in stricter measures over time. But in many ways, we were taking much less a hands-on approach initially, having money in place, having procedures in place, but just sort of waiting to see what happens. Um, sort of taking that away from this scenario, um, which approach do you generally prefer to take yourself, carry when you're dealing with issues in an everyday context? Would you dive straight in, get on top of the situation ASAP, or would you let it, things play out a bit, see how matters develop, and then take action based on that? Um, I suppose... My own approach is I do dive straight in sometimes. Sometimes I get um, criticism for doing so, but um, I do like to deal with things as soon as they as soon as they arrive. Um, 
I think that's just, you know, in the nature I'm not saying that's the best approach to take, but it's one that um, I do like to take myself. I think um, if you deal with things as early as you possibly can, it gives you more time then to actually respond later on if, if difficulties arise. Um, I think, you know, myself, nature for me just means presence. It, it, you have to be there. You have to be there for the team. The team has to see you and the team has to see you act because I think it's important to provide confidence to the organization if they can see that the leaders of the organization aren't doing something. I think sometimes sitting back and waiting um, can be seen as indecision, and that's not mm. something that you want to appear to be doing at the time. Yes, for sure. It's um, about establishing a balance um, in one way between being proactive, having plans in place, taking decisions and also being reactive and also being able to not just sort of sit back and roll with the punches, as it were, but also to be able to make decisions as matters around you change as well, isn't it? Exactly that, I think, because in any organisation, you know, there are, there, are, there are people in those organisations who do the work, who do the groundwork, who who, who do these things who are experts in their field. I think it's just down to the leader to take the decisions and activate you know, those decisions ensure that they're carried out to their full potential. Um, you know, every, every organization consists of experts and teams of experts, and I think it's the leader's job to actually just ensure that they're working at their optimum at the right time. Absolutely. And um, I think what's also quite important um, is that a leader is responsible for creating an environment of positivity as well and making sure that everybody is pulling in the same direction, really to try and nurture their staff and get the best out of them as well. Um, Would you agree with that? Would you say that that's also something that ultimately falls upon a leader's shoulders, creating that sort of culture? I think think that's critical, isn't it? At the end of the day, I think if a leader can do that, then um, he's halfway there. I talk about it in my school with my staff. I talk about shows of fish and making sure we all swim in the right direction. I think there's strength in that. I think, you know, structures become unstructured, if you like, is when, when people are pulling in different directions and it's, it's less effective. I think, you know, a group of expert individuals who are working separately is not as, as, not as effective as a group of mediocre individuals who are all working towards the same goal. It's a really interesting scenario you um, present there, Kerry, um, because um, a lot of people seem to think that great leaders are just these people who are born with these qualities, but it's not necessarily the uh, the case, is it? It is very much a learning process and having a team of people there who are all sort of heading towards the same goal, as it were, isn't it? It's something you can learn, good leadership. It's not something you just have from the offset. Absolutely. Um, I wouldn't classify myself as a great leader. I'm, I'm very fallible and I make mistakes every single day. Um, luckily, I'm mentored and I'm coached to you know, reflect on those mistakes, but I don't, I don't think leaders are born. As I said, I learn every single day. I, I take feedback from my staff and from others, and hopefully I, I, I get better every single day. But I, I think the day that any leader in any organization stops learning, stops listening, and stops responding to feedback is is a is a sad day. Yes, for sure, because it links back to that learning process, doesn't it? Taking feedback on board and having that learning process um, right the way um, through your career, as it were. Um, did you always imagine yourself, Kerry, that you'd end up in a leadership position yourself, even if you don't consider yourself a great leader? Um, no, I never, I never considered um, ending up in a leadership um, role. To be perfectly honest. Um, as you know, my background is in education and teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, although I suppose teachers, you know, seen them as at their 
simplest are our leaders. They are leaders of learning, they're leaders of children. But I never actually um, aspired, if you like, to become um, a leader of the school. That wasn't something that ever crossed my mind, really. I, I suppose what you do in any profession is, you know, you have the passion and the drive to do what is best for your children in, in the education terms, you know, obviously is making sure the next generation are in a better place than the previous generation. And I think just through driving that forward, I found myself in my current role. Yeah, it's a really interesting story because I think it's very much about the uh, the way that a leader comes to be in their position and the journey they embark on to get there, which is really important as part of that uh, learning process. Um, but also quite important for today's leaders in any context are the people that inspire them. And is there anybody that comes to mind, um, even if it's someone you encounter in your everyday career or somebody who is put on a pedestal and is a more prominent figure that has inspired you um, to be a good leader, Kerry? I think, you know, I've, I've, I've been inspired by many, many people. I, I, I'm lucky I've had some very, very um, prominent figures and mentors um, in my academic career, which, you know, um, I always get a gratitude to. I think um, the turning point for me tonight, and certainly for me, was um, caused by the Leadership Trust, which is an organization which runs um, courses for um, would-be leaders. And I think I spent a week there with leaders from different organizations which are outside education and I think for me watching effective leaders operate you know outside my own domain was was really eye-opening and and, and trying to model what they did um, was I think for me was was the time when I actually started to understand what a leader was I think sometimes you know personally I think aspiring to be a leader for the sake of being a leader is, is a great mistake I think it's a terrible mistake to make. I think, you know, the importance is you look at what your role is in any particular organization and you focus on doing that to the utmost of your capability. And I think if you do that, opportunities come to you. Yes, I think that's um, a very good uh, way of looking at it and very different as well because you, you may see some people aspiring to be like others and seeing leadership in that point of view. But more um, above anything else, um, I should really say it is about fulfilling your role within a given organisation and really helping direct towards those aims that you have. Um, Kerry, before we do... Yeah, yeah carry on. No, I was just going to say, I think, you know, especially in education, I'm sure it's, it's true for leadership everywhere. It's not a purpose, I think. You know, as a leader um, in education, you have to have moral purpose. That's why you do it. Mm-hmm. You do it because it, it it makes a difference and you believe in that difference. Otherwise, why would you do it? Absolutely. Um, you mentioned that um, um, you wouldn't do it um, if um, that wasn't the uh, the point. I'm um, absolutely right. Um, before we go about wrapping things um, up, Kerry, uh, one thing I do want to touch on is uh, the next 12 months and what you imagine, um, given everything that's going on, that's going to hold for yourself, also for Gable Hall School and what you really hope to be able to achieve in that time as well. I think obviously, you know, we're at uncertain times at the moment. We're very saddened that our year 11 students and our year 13 students are not going to get, you know, the, the, the joy of the exam results. And I think that's a big blow for all of us. And, and I'm sure it's a big blow for schools across the country. I think what we are really going to focus on now, of course, is in the short term, is caring for our children when they're not in school and trying to support parents as much as we possibly can. And then for me, in the long term, then next year, we're looking at our curriculum development and our journey in Gable Hall to improve Gable Hall School to make it the best learning community we possibly can. 
Yes, for sure. And uh, hopefully it's not going to prove the case that um, everything going on with the um, the outbreak is going to be disruptive uh, to that. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, Kerry, having you um, on the programme today. And in fact, I think it would be fantastic to have you back on the programme in a few months time just to look at this retrospectively and really see how things have played out in that respect. So once again, thank you so much for coming on the programme and joining us today. You're very welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Um, We now hand over to my colleague Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. Match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? 
Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure was like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how, how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, 
you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation, Absolutely. and it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, 
they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know, Eva, when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be 
the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah well so was, <laughs> was I actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely um, now and you in your in your wife's memory you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year uh, in doing so whether you'd admit it or not yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands husbands and wives mothers and fathers sons and daughters please do take some time if you wouldn't mind and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... Uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight, rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about, about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, so I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.